Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you here this morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Our key scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 and 14 through 20. So if you want to turn there this morning, you're welcome to. I'll be reading it here uh, for you today. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 and 14 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teachings said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some A hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus later explained the parable starting in verse 14. And he said, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. The church that I uh, worked at before coming back here, um, there was a gentleman there who was uh, in his mid-90s. He's someone who knew a lot about the Bible. He had done a lot of teaching throughout time. He had been an engineer at NASA. He was just a fascinating guy, and he would come in and talk to me in my office all the time, and he would write articles and bring these articles to me. And so one Sunday I was preaching, and um, because he had trouble sleeping and all these different things, I, I looked out, and he was dead asleep during my sermon, which I know is shocking to you guys. How could anyone fall asleep, and let me just say, I know who you are. I know who you are. But he was just dead asleep. You know, it's one thing when your eyes are a little heavy, or but this guy was just out. So every Tuesday he would come to the church building and help pass out food to those who would come in from the community. And and he comes in and I'm like, you know, hey buddy, how are you doing? And he says, I we need to go in your office and I need to talk to you. And I said, Okay, well let's go talk. So we go into my office and he comes in and we sit down and he said I have a bone to pick with you about what you said in your sermon on Sunday. Yeah, I said, okay. And he said, I heard you say in your sermon 
that people don't really need to believe in Jesus and they can still be saved. And I said, well, I'm pretty confident I didn't say that on Sunday. Well, but I heard you say this and that. So I, I told him I didn't say it and then I pulled up the notes on my computer and I showed him what my sermon said and we talked about the section that he thought he was thinking of and uh, I showed him I didn't say anything about not believing in Jesus during this part and he sat back in his chair and he said, you know what? The hearing aids have been going, or the batteries have been going out in my hearing aids and um, they might have just gone out while you were talking. I said, oh, well, you know, maybe, and you know what? I'm on this new medication and sometimes it causes me to fall asleep. And I said, oh, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. Thank you for coming to correct me anyway um, this morning. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is not about our hearing aids failing, but he is asking the question, are there times where we cannot hear him at all? For one reason or another. Or are there times where we miss the point of what it is that he is trying to say? We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. The teachings of Jesus are powerful and life-changing, yet there are so many people who have heard the words of Jesus and have not been changed. And there are so many times in our own lives where we hear the, word of, the words of Jesus and we skip over the parts that we don't like. True? True. And Jesus tells us in very simple terms why. There are things that are either actively or passively preventing us, preventing the word of God from taking root in our lives. And you know what? I hate to say this, but I really think it's true. Some form of this can take place to anyone at any time. But there is one thing that I want to point out, which is maybe not something you've thought about before. The word itself doesn't change. It always goes out. And it's thrown out indiscriminately. But there is a small piece of good news, and that is the soil can change. If any of you have ever planted a garden or worked on a farm or done any of those sorts of things, you know what I'm talking about. In my parents' house, we had this strip of dirt in the backyard. It was, it was pretty wide. I don't know how long. It was maybe 25, 30, 40 feet long and probably about 15 feet deep. And this was where my dad would uh, put his garden. And every year, there were a million weeds in that thing. And I would spend, it seemed like, weeks trying to get all those weeds out. And then my dad would come out and tell me how I didn't get all the weeds out. And then we'd do it again. And then he would go out to his friend's house. And his friend had horses. And he would get all of the horse manure that he could into this little trailer. And he'd bring it back. And we'd shovel the horse manure and spread it out all over this patch of ground. And then he would get a rototiller and he would turn all of it over and then he, we would rake it all out and only then would he plant his garden. We would spend sometimes a month just getting the soil ready for him to put the seed into the ground. Church, that's good news. That's good news. Because what was once Hard and weed-ridden soil was now soft and fertile and ready for something to grow. Sometimes the soil may be too rocky, but the good news is rocks can be removed. 
Sometimes uh, birds can come and can eat, but sometimes, but other times the seed can be planted with such care and diligence that the birds can't get to it. Almost any soil can be turned into good soil. And when the soil is worked, it becomes rich. And then when the soil is rich, the words of Jesus can take root. One, that is a really powerful idea. Two, we have a father, a God, who keeps sowing and working the soil. And three, even the worst soil can become a place of growth. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that church is good news for us today. So uh, Liam had a high fever and uh, had a seizure. So that's, that's why he is on his way to the hospital today. Uh, so we want to pray. Uh, Kim and Aaron asked for prayers, and that's why we prayed for them. We'll continue to think about them throughout the morning. Uh, this morning, we uh, continue on our journey through the Bible and more specifically through the life of Jesus. Uh, th- throughout the, this, oh, I'm sorry, kids, get out of here. Did you see the near fear in their eyes when they thought they were going to have to stay here? <laughs> no! Not that. Uh, throughout, throughout this series, uh, we have been viewing the Bible as one uh, really large, overarching narrative. And so because we've been looking at it as a narrative and a story that's been building on itself, uh, we've been able to look at the Bible in a slightly different way than maybe we have before. Uh, we've talked about characters and plot and problems to be solved, and we have, uh, to some degree, marveled at the drama that happens over and over again. And so if you remember, uh, there are two uh, main characters within the story. There's God, and then there's Satan. And God's great desire is to have relationship with humanity, which he lovingly formed and breathed life into. And he wants us to choose him, so that he can love us in the way that he wants to. And this is how God set up the world from the beginning. He gave us the ability to choose him or to choose something else. But the reason why he gave us the ability to choose is because he wanted us to choose to love him. He wanted us to see how much he loves us, how good he is, uh, all the gifts that he wants to give us so that we would choose him and make him our God. But the problem was that Satan stood on the other side of this equation, and Satan's goal is to turn people away from God. And we found then in the story that humanity's problem is not that they're in the middle. The problem is that they most often choose something else besides God. We fall into temptation, we believe the lies that Satan tells us, and we walk away from God. But again, the story changed with the coming of Jesus, because in the old part of the story, right, we saw these, this cycle sort of continue over and over again without any real resolution to the problem. But with the coming of Jesus, we're starting to see that there is a resolution to the problem. And the amazing thing about the resolution is that it's God who is, who is providing this solution. Because what have we learned about humanity throughout the story? If humanity is going to be relied upon to come up with a solution, it's not going to happen. Because humanity, we are the people who fall for the lies over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
until we're in such deep trouble, we say, God, come help us. And then God delivers us, and then we forget about how God delivers us, and then we walk away from him again. And it's what's so remarkable about the story as Jesus comes in. God is changing the story forever. Because what does he know? He knows that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. But here's the thing. As Jesus came, he was not the Messiah that the world expected. But he was and is the one that the world needs. But people had a hard time seeing it. You know, Jesus waited around a while before he started his ministry, and as his ministry began to spread, he became a force to be reckoned with all throughout the area, but it was for multiple reasons. One, it was hard to ignore the kind of power that Jesus displayed over and over again. I mean, you hear a story about a guy who feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. And you hear that story and you're like, that's not possible. Exactly. It's not possible. But this is what Jesus did. And, and he showed incredible power over nature, over the human body, over illness, over the spiritual realm. And he even raised two people from the dead. So it's hard to ignore. If you can imagine, as these stories start to build one on top of another, and people are saying, he did this. Well, well, I heard he did this. Well, I saw this. Well, I was this. Right? These stories start to build. And so it's hard to ignore someone who can do these other, these kinds of things. And as we talk about this, and as we talk about the, the power that Jesus displayed, as outsiders who are reading this story, what do we think about people who choose not to believe Jesus? Well, how dumb can you be? You see someone do this, and what would you, I mean, what should be the conclusion that you come to? Like, it's pretty obvious, right? And so we're asking the question, and it's probably one of the questions we've been asking all along, is why don't people see and understand? Why are they choosing something different? Why are they going this route? We take for granted how countercultural Jesus really was at that time. I mean, I, I think I might have mentioned this to you last week, but there were other people who claimed to be able to heal, who claimed to be able to drive out demons. And they were nowhere near on the same level as Jesus. But this whole idea that someone was a miracle worker was not something that was new to them. It was not something that they had never heard of before. And even though Jesus displayed the kind of power that should have changed minds, and oftentimes it did. You know, sometimes when we read the Gospels, we forget that Jesus had an army of people following him from place to place. And that he was changing lives everywhere he went, because the Gospels tell us a lot about the people who didn't choose him. Right? But Jesus had these people following all around the place. What really kind of made it difficult for a lot of people to follow him was not necessarily what he did, although people struggled with him eating with tax collectors and sinners or going to prostitutes' house or being around people that were unclean. They did struggle with this, and we're going to see a little bit of that this morning. But do you know what really got Jesus in trouble? 
his mouth. That's what really got him in trouble. The things that he said, the way that he said them, who he said them to. This is what really made it difficult for some people to come to understand who Jesus was. And I wonder, just for a second, if Jesus walked through the back doors and into this church and started to teach us, if we would like what he would tell us either. As Jesus continued his ministry, he taught everywhere he went. The healings, the driving out of demons, all these things were to forward the message The kingdom of God is coming. And this, and more than that, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And you can live the kingdom of God here and now. And so he was redefining things as he went. And people heard the things that he said. And their first reaction was, there is no way that can be true. What you're saying. Because it's always been like this. Or no one has ever said that before. But some encountered him, and they heard what he said, they saw what he did, and they knew that he was the Son of God, while others could not see past what it was that Jesus was saying or how he did the things he did. These two things rose up in front of them like a wall. And as much as maybe they tried to get through it, I imagine that some people did. We actually saw it with Nicodemus several weeks ago. Nicodemus didn't really understand, and so what does he do? He goes to Jesus and talks with him and tries to figure out what is this all about. But hey, we know from the story and we know from our own lives, if obstacles rise up in front of us that make it difficult for us to make the leap from one place to the next, what do we do? Well, we have options, right? Sometimes we overcome those obstacles. But sometimes we don't. And even worse, sometimes we choose not to because what it is that is in front of us is just too hard. You identify with that at all? Um, Jesus was looking for people who would hear the voice of God, that would listen to the words that he was saying, and that would follow him. That would follow him because he knew that as people followed him, they would pick up more and more what God was doing. They would become more and more like the one they were following. And some people, again, did that. While others could not do that. But I want you to understand again, which I I mentioned this last week, Jesus had one common goal for every single person he met. And that was, he wanted everyone, no matter who they were, to catch on what God was do, to, to catch on to what God was doing through him. And he wanted everyone to hear that. But have you ever taught a group of children before? Raise your hand if you have ever taught a group of children. Or, just to maybe help include everybody, if you've had multiple children and tried to teach them all the same way. Right? 
I mean, what do we know is true? Everybody's different, right? Everybody's different. And you know, so let me just reflect back to you for a second. Here's what that means. There are going to be some Sundays where one of you thinks my sermon was the greatest thing ever. It'll, it happens. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it happens often, I'm just saying it happens. Um, and someone in this room will think, man, he really missed it today. Or maybe I'll do some huge demonstration and someone will say, oh, that really brought it to life. And someone else will say, that was so distracting. Right? Right? We're all, we're all different people. And we all learn in different kinds of ways. But Jesus had this common goal. He was going to teach the kingdom of God. And he was going to challenge where challenge needed to happen. He was going to encourage where encouragement needed to happen. But here's the one thing. As much as we think the as much as we think that the miracles are sort of defining points for him, which they were, his words were much more important than any of those things. Because you could sort of explain away, if you wanted to, how Jesus did some of the things he did. But when you heard him, there was really no way to mistake what it was that he was saying. And then if you went to ask him, there's one thing that I've learned from the Gospels. It's that I should never approach Jesus and ask a question about myself. I, I just shouldn't. I just shouldn't. I should just say, thank you, Jesus, and just leave it at that. But there are you, you would hear his words, and when you look at them, you just can't, you can't skip over them. You can't pretend like he didn't say what he said. You can't pretend like he didn't mean what he said. And like the parable we talked about this morning, sometimes the soil is ready to hear that word, and sometimes it is not ready for a multitude of reasons. But as a teacher, he was undeniable. So this morning, um, we're just kind of take a few minutes to look at a few of Jesus' teachings and we're going to look at why, what makes them special, what makes them different. Okay, because there are some characteristics of Jesus' teachings. And the first one, and the one that I really appreciate uh, as much as any of them, is that uh, Jesus, Jesus teaches in a way that engages the imagination. Okay? He engages the imagination. Uh, we've, we've looked at the parable in the, or the, the passage in the past couple of weeks about why does Jesus teach in parables. And on one hand, he says, well, it's so that the people who will hear will hear and those who don't want to hear won't. But there's more to it than that because throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses images to display something deep within the kingdom of God. And we learn really well through stories, don't we? Whether it's watching a movie or reading a book or whatever it is, we are surrounded by narrative everywhere we are. And so Jesus uses that, uses narrative, uses our imaginations to help teach us. Now, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. 
Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It will also be on the screen behind me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Again, big mistake. All right, I just, that one's for free. All right, that's for free. He stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he followed up by asking a question about himself. I mean, it's just, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, this is old law. This is old rule. This, they knew this, right? This is not something that's, that's new. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We never learn. It's true. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, who would have been another religious person of the time, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, first off, let's just admire the effectiveness of this story. Um, it's so effective that our culture has even adapted the name of the main character of this story to describe people who do good for others. So anytime the world knows what a good Samaritan is, it means this story is, is pretty powerful. And it starts out with this simple question, right? Who is my neighbor? Now, we know what Jesus said because we just read it, but have you ever considered this? What could Jesus have said? Everyone. And anyone in need. And would that have answered the question? Yes. But if he had said everyone... And anyone in need, would the guy have learned anything? No. He would just start, well, what do you mean by everyone? And what does it mean to be in need? What kind of need? How needy do they need to be? When you say everyone, do you mean within a certain geographical region? Um, are you talking about the world as a whole? Because, I mean, that's a lot of people, right? I mean, he can't, he doesn't, if Jesus answered, he wouldn't really learn Instead, he told a very pointed and somewhat graphic story, not only to answer the question that was asked, but also to answer the question that was not yet asked. Okay? The question that was asked was, who is my neighbor? But he also answers the question, 
what makes someone my neighbor? Okay? What makes someone my neighbor? So, what is so great about this story in answering those questions? Well, just how about everything? Everything. Everything about it is, is great. The core of the story is one that people would have been somewhat familiar with at the time. When you traveled on foot to different places, particularly when you had to go through any hilly or rocky area, chances are there could be something that happens to you there. And this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is not the easiest road. And so hearing that some guy got robbed and beaten up on this road, I mean, you know, it, it, it happens. It happens. Um, and that actually helps us, to a degree, maybe understand uh, what makes this story so significant. Okay? Um, but this man who gets beaten up is not really the story. I mean, the poor dude is on death's door, but he's not even who the story is about. Okay? He's just the vehicle to get us to the next place. He was left for dead, so the next question that has to be answered in the story itself as Jesus is going is, okay, well, will he survive, or what happens to him, Right? And he needs help. It's clear that he needs help. So some good candidates for help come along. A priest comes by. And there are two important things that happen when both the priest and the Levite come by. Number one, what is the first and most important thing that happens? They see the dude. All right? They see him. And they recognize, here's a man who has been robbed and beaten. And what do they do? They cross to the other side, and walk straight by. Now, this teacher of the law at this point is thinking, like, okay, right, how, do I, how do I feel about this? Is this, a, this seems like a bad thing. Uh, and it was a bad thing. You see, these men who were considered religious and godly men, instead of taking care of the man, they simply walked by. We don't know why they walked by, although we can explain some reasons why they probably chose to, in terms of being unclean and blah, 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 blah. But within the story, is there any way to mistake them as being the negative people in the story? No. Okay? They are the negative people in the story. And then, this is what's beautiful about it, then the least likely person comes along, and the person is a Samaritan. And the Jewish people did not like Samaritans because Samaritans had stayed back when the Jewish people were taken into exile and they had intermarried with some of the tribes and peoples that lived outside of the Jewish reason. And so they were basically considered half-breeds who still had some sort of faith in God, but they were not allowed to come back to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. You know why? Because they didn't go through what we went through. And... They stayed here and they lived a comfortable life while we did these things. So they are not really the true people. They're watered down and there is no place for them here. I mean, you can almost imagine that as this religious group is gathered around Jesus, when he says a Samaritan comes, eyes are rolling. Oh, great. Right? Here he comes. And it is this man who did what the men of God should have done. It is this guy who took care of the injured man and gave of himself so that the man could return to health once again. So Jesus had very thoroughly answered the question by the end, right? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
Anyone. Anyone. And particularly, who? Those who are in need. They are your neighbor. And what did the law first say that he quoted earlier on? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, if this is what the law is, then who are you supposed to be loving? By trying to ask this question in the first place, which people do, Jesus Jesus illustrates that sometimes when we ask these kinds of questions, we're really just, we miss the point. You know, we're already missing the point when we ask the question. How far do I have to go with this? But look, in his story, even this half-breed, ungodly Samaritan understood something that apparently the people of God don't because they're asking the question in the first place. He understood that when someone is hurt and in need, you take care of them. You take care of them. These two men have a very deep implied religious relationship. This man doesn't. And what does he understand? You love people and take care of them. When these two religious men do not understand that. Look, even this guy knows. Even this guy knows. These are your neighbors. What did I tell you? Don't ask Jesus questions about yourself, particularly if you are looking to justify. But it's the way that Jesus engages our imaginations, that we picture the story, that we see what happens, that we it's so clear who is in the wrong and who is in the right. And he does a masterful job of helping us to understand that. Number two, Jesus' teachings tell us about the very heart of God. They tell us about the heart of God. Now, we have grown up hearing about the heart of God, right? I don't know how old I was when I learned that Jesus died for me, but I was pretty young when I learned that. And so my entire life has been lived under the umbrella of God loves me and accepts me, right? But at this time, that was not necessarily what was going on. And Jesus had to correct how people understood God's heart, how he loves, who he loves, why he loves. It's so, we take that for granted. It's so common sense to us, but to them it wasn't. And so in order to help people understand the heart of God, he uses what we just saw him use. He uses the imagination. He uses a story. He just tells people flat out. He displays it. But listen to this story, which maybe more than any other one, really displays the heart of God toward his people. This comes from Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Stop. Now, this story is a terrible story. And if you had heard it for the very first time, within a culture where families passed everything down one to another, where land, work, everything was passed down, it is very clear, number one, who is in the wrong, and number two, what should be done about the one in the wrong. I mean, this kid basically walked up and said, Dad, I wish you were dead, but you're not. So can you just go ahead and like fork over what will be mine when you die? He does it. And nobody's surprised when he goes off and wastes it all. Because that's what this kind of person does. And then he has the audacity to think he can go back and his father will give him anything. He has already cut himself off from his father. He did that. He cut himself off. His father owes him nothing. And any self-respecting, God-loving person at that time would probably say, no. No. You have disgraced us by what you've done. And you don't belong here anymore. And you made that choice when you left. That's how, church... That's how the story should have gone. It's how the story should have gone. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So here Jesus engages the imagination again, but he describes God through a scenario that is now, in a lot of our minds, synonymous with the love of God. It's a story that illustrates the love of God. But this teaching also stemmed from a question of sorts. Verse 2 says, But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They would have finished the story in the way it should have been finished. These people have chosen to disgrace God. It's not God's fault they did that. I don't know how they're going to get back to him. God is a God of rules, of standards. You follow him, you honor him with all that you do. And if you have treated God this way to where the people around you know you're a sinner, then tough luck, man. I mean, you can't come to the temple. 
You can't offer sacrifices. How do you get back? You don't. You don't. That's the story they would have told. But this story reveals something completely different. It reveals something completely different. Number one, God is the Father in this story. Which means that God was denied as powerfully as he could have been by his son. Number two, God takes the son back even though his son has done unspeakable things. Number three, God takes the son back even though the son rejected him in the first place. And number four, and maybe most importantly, God cannot wait to take the son back and to not hold his faults against him. Let me come back as a servant. No, you are my son. And if you're coming back, you're coming back all the way. All that was done by the son was forgotten in the moment of restoration. Because what was the thing the father wanted the most? He wanted the son to come home. He wanted the son to come home. He didn't want the son to be destroyed. He didn't want the son, well, I hope you learned your lesson. He wanted the son to come back. And this father doesn't care how he gets back. He just wants him back. And he almost doesn't care about where he's been. He just wants him back. And when he sees him, he runs to him and doesn't ask him a question about where he's been or what he's done. He just restores him. Now, can you imagine the people that asked the question in the first place they had dedicated their entire lives to God. They knew God inside and out. They knew all about what God wanted. Can you imagine having spent your entire life dedicated to God and not knowing how much he loves people? And not knowing this about him. That people can come back and that God is waiting for them. And with one powerful story, Jesus told them that God is all about eating with sinners. God is all about being with the people you're not supposed to be with. Because God loves them. And he has dinner with them so they will enter into community with him. Because he wants them to come home. Good story. Jesus is not always so cuddly, though. We do tend to focus on all of the, these kinds of stories because they're so powerful and they communicate so much, but the, the thing we have to realize at the same time is that Jesus was a very confrontational person. Okay, He was very confrontational. And we actually kind of saw this in the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus was not afraid to call out who? A priest and a Levite. So we know that this happens. He was not afraid to say exactly what he meant and to call out things that were wrong about him. And here's an example of this. There's actually quite a few. This happens regularly. All right? But from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, 
And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, here's what we need to understand about this story. Jesus is naming names in this story. And not only is he naming names, but he is saying exactly what is wrong with them. And tells people what? Do not be like these people. Now, there were all kinds of recited in public prayers within the Jewish faith. This was not the problem. They would pray at different times of day, together and even out loud. This was not the problem. It's not a sort of condemnation of public prayer. But what is the problem? Well, there's a difference between me praying like this. There's a difference between me praying for you. Yeah, when we're just together. And there's a difference between me standing at the highest point I can. Dear Lord, thank you so much for what you have given me. There's a difference between those things, right? One, you may not hear anything. Two, you may just be hopefully participating with me in the prayer. But it's hard to take someone seriously who does something like that. Yeah? It just is. It's hard to take someone seriously. But there were people who would go to synagogues at the times of prayer and find something to stand on and would pray as loud as they could while everyone was there. And there were people who would go to the street corners when they were the busiest. And they would find a place to stand where people could see them. And they would pray as loud as they could. And Jesus calls them a very, it's a very unkind word. They are hypocrites. Because, why are they hypocrites? Because they are not praying to pray to God. They are praying this way to bring attention to themselves. And that is what makes them the bad people in this story. Now, here's something you probably haven't thought about. Everyone listening that day probably knew one of those people. Or at least had seen them multiple times. So when Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, what happens? Boom! Joe pops into your head. Right? And maybe Joe is standing there next to you. And how does Joe feel about this teaching? Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Jesus was confrontational. Um, and we have to recognize that many of his teachings are not easy by any stretch of the imagination. His teachings are still confrontational to us, to the choices we make, to the lifestyles we live. His teachings are confrontational. And what happens is when we're confronted, Jesus' teachings affect a change in whatever is going on. From Luke chapter 18, verse 18 through 25. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Recipe for disaster. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now, sometimes we go to the teachings of Jesus and we just want to hear something good, right? Jesus, encourage me. Be the one who gives me the power to overcome anything in my life. That's what I want to hear. But if you pay attention to the teachings of Jesus, he is going to say something to you that is going to put you in a position that you do not want to be in. Because his teachings will say to you, you're doing this, and that's great. But what about this? Why don't you give this up? And, and then this is, this is tough here. This is tough. Why don't you give this up and then follow me? Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second. That can't, that can't be right. I must have misread this. It can't be right because what he ultimately, it's one of the most Jesus-y things he could do in this moment, is he identified in this young man the two things that were actually holding him back. Sometimes we read the Bible because we want confirmation for the good things we're doing. But what happens when we are shown the things that we lack? And what happens to this guy? We don't know, actually. Have you thought about that? We don't know. We know he's sad because he's got a lot of wealth. And Jesus even, it's going to be hard, man. Like camel through a needle, hard. But, I love this because this is consistently true with the teachings of Jesus. He will point out to us the things that we need to do. And especially if we're asking, right? If we're asking, and this guy was honestly asking. Let's just consider it a moment where he was looking for an answer. He's honestly asking and, and Jesus gives him the answer. This is what you can do. But then, what happens? We don't know, because what do we not know? We do not know what he chose. But who gets to decide? He does. He gets to decide. He gets to choose whether he follows Jesus or whether he stays. Now, You know, if you read the teachings of Jesus and you think to yourself, I'm doing really well, then you're not reading closely enough. Or perhaps we've even trained ourselves to overlook the things that are too personal, that are too close, that actually call us to change something. This passage alone gives us 
should give us enormous pause. This passage alone. And it was, but it's so easy to read it as it pertains to this young man and then move on. But Jesus is talking about us in this same passage. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. Well, guess what that means? It means that everything you've been doing is wonderful. But Jesus is still going to change what you need or Jesus still knows what you need to change and, and, and how you need to get there in order so that you can do what? Follow him. So that you can follow him. Because we are always struggling against something that is keeping us from following him. Right? Always. And Jesus overcomes those things as we saw in the story of the, the, the son, but... He's still calling us to make the choice for God. And it's, it's our fault when we don't make the choice. It's our, I hate to just be so redundant, but it's our choice when we don't choose him. Right? The last reason why he's so hard to ignore at then and now is this. Jesus spoke with authority. He meant what he said. And he spoke boldly on behalf of God. Listen to this. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fail because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority <laughs> and not as their teachers of the law. It stings, but it's true. And in this one passage, we see Jesus do everything we've just talked about. All of it. He does it all right there. You can follow and have life. Your house will stand. He gives us this wonderful image and he's also confronting us at the same time. It's your call what you're going to do. But listen to what he says about himself. You can believe me or not. But if you believe me, things will be, your house will stand. And if you don't believe me, it's going to fall. But that's your choice. It's not mine. That's, that's up to you. But here's what, to me, I, I, that last part is kind of a throw-in in a little bit to that parable. But understand what it means. Jesus is talking as if he knows God. And all of the teachers of the law were talking as though they didn't know God. And we're just scrambling to do the best they could to please this God. Why can Jesus speak of the love of God so powerfully? Because he knows the love of God. Why can the Pharisees not? Because they don't even know this about him. So when Jesus speaks, he is speaking on behalf of God. The Father who is calling us to give 
up the last thing to follow him, but is also waiting for us to run back from our darkest place. We learn all of this from the teachings of Jesus. And the last thing I want you to consider this morning is that sometimes we wonder what we have to say to others about Jesus. Well, think about how much Jesus had to say about God. He had a lot to say about God. Think about the stories that we've talked about this morning and the stories we haven't talked about. Jesus showed that in every moment, in every scenario, in every place, there was something to say about God that fit that moment and time and place. And granted, we are not as wise as Jesus is. And I would especially encourage you to be careful with the confrontational part. We are not as smart as we think we are. But consider this. Every moment, every place, every time, every situation, Jesus recognized there is something to say about God. We call ourselves Christians, disciples of Jesus, which means we follow the teachings of Jesus. And in every moment, in every time, in every place, in every situation, guess what? We have a story to tell about God. And sometimes we're the prodigal son. And sometimes we're the proud son. And sometimes we're the good Samaritan. Sometimes we're the person who was left for dead on the side of the road. But all these stories, all of these things, there are stories. There are stories. Because we are a part of the story that God is telling. Amen? You almost sounded like you meant it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the way that Jesus taught. We are grateful for the things that he said. Father, may we be bold enough to read the words of Jesus and to hear the call that he is giving to us. God, help us not to skip the hard parts. Help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted. And Father, give us the courage, as I hope that young man had, to give up what was keeping him from following the God that he had followed his entire life. May we give up those things as well. Out of our knowledge of the love you have for us and the goodness of who you are through your son Jesus, so that we may follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song together.